Hey friends, Steve Weens here. Welcome to This Good Word. Today I want to talk about what happens when you do something and you get misunderstood and then resisting the temptation to explain yourself to those to whom they're really not going to understand anyway and then finding the spaces where you are understood. Enjoy. So there's this story in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the fourth uh, Gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is a little different. The other three are called the Synoptic Gospels. John seems to be doing something entirely different. Uh, all the stories, many of the stories that John tells seems to speak of sort of the abundance of God. There's the story of the miracle of the water that is changed into wine. And it's this beautiful story about this wedding and Jesus is there with his disciples and his mother is there too. Mary is there too. And then you know, we read that uh, after a long time, and, and weddings back then, I guess, were days long. They were just they were festivals, you know, and uh, and so there was lots of food and lots of wine. And then at this one wedding that they were at, the wine had run out, which uh, would have been very embarrassing to the hosts. And so we read that Mary says to Jesus, "Hey, uh, you should do something about this," and he sort of resists. He's like, "Hey, I don't." He says, it's not my time yet, when we don't really know exactly what that means. But then Mary says to the uh, the head attendant, the head server, hey, just go ahead and do whatever it is that my son tells you to do. You know, Mary's like not having it, you know. And so Jesus goes ahead and changes about 180 gallons of water into about 180 gallons of wine, right? So... Uh, you know, uh, that's abundance, you know, when the party's already done and, and the Bible is really clear that he says that the, the people are already drunk. <laughs> and so we have 180 more gallons of wine, right? Why does he do that? Who knows? Uh, there's a story of the woman, of the Samaritan woman at the well. And so Jesus meets this woman, uh, which you know, men never did. You would never find a Jewish man talking to any woman uh, at a well. I mean, that just is completely unheard of. But Samaritans were um, people who were looked at as by, you know, a good Jewish person would look at a Samaritan person in the first century and uh, they would be the worst kind of, um, you know, pe people who would take yeah, a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion, mix it all together, and what you would get, according to a good Jewish person, uh, like Jesus or like anyone else, like you know Saul later on turns into Paul or any any rabbi, any religious leader, uh, that would be unthinkable, unheard of, and they would be looked on with total suspicion. So there's this woman, and she is. Uh, sitting at the well, she's getting some water and Jesus strikes up a conversation with her and it's all about her life. And, you know, we read that uh, she's had five husbands and, 
And Jesus says, yes, that's true. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband. And we anachronistically take that as a morality play, like, you know, as if this woman in the first century is sort of uh, just having boyfriend after boyfriend and leaving one, leaving another, a husband, then divorcing. That just absolutely is not what would have happened because that's not how women didn't have that kind of uh, agency back in the first century. So who knows what it meant? It might have meant that five husbands had died or that they had divorced her for any reason, which they could have for any reason. And so it is not a morality play. Jesus is not saying quit sleeping around or quit, you know, divorcing your husbands or whatever. Uh, he is saying in some bizarre kind of way, um, I know you even though I don't know you. And we don't know exactly how he comes to know that bit of information. I don't believe he was like Superman who knew absolutely everything. I don't think that's the way in which that his divinity showed. Uh, but what we do see is he has a long conversation with her, the likes, uh, or sorry, the result of which is that she is so, uh, so impressed by Jesus, so uh, transformed. Uh, by this conversation that she goes back and tells her whole village and the whole village comes to be transformed by Jesus. It's just, John is this extravagant, crazy story uh, or crazy selection of stories that talks about the abundance of God. And so the one I want to talk about today is a time when uh, Jesus, uh, it's in John 9, and Jesus comes across a man who's born blind. And his disciples ask a really good question for the first century. And, he, and they say, essentially, who sinned? Uh, because clearly someone sinned, or else this innocent person would not have been born blind. Uh, did he sin, or did his parents sin? And it's kind of interesting. Like, did he sin, even though he was born blind? <laughs> did he sin coming out of the womb? <laughs> uh, but regardless, Jesus says, you know, neither one of them sinned. That's a ridiculous question, right? Uh, if you were listening to my episode last week, mu, which is this Japanese word, which essentially means, please unask your question and ask a better one because your question is designed to help, limit me to only give one of two dualistic binary answers, and I don't want to do that. And so Jesus, in saying neither one sinned, is basically saying mu. Unask your question. Ask a better question. That's a terrible question. Uh, neither one of them sinned. In fact, he's born blind so that the works of God may be shown in him. Even that, I think you can, that seems pretty offensive. Like why does, why does one person have to grow up blind just to show God's glory? And so we can talk a whole lot about that. I think there's lots of good conversation to have about that. Um, but that's not actually what I want to talk about today. What I want to talk about is Jesus ends up healing the person. He does it by sort of this bizarre way. He sort of takes some mud and 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 rubs it on his eyes. But it's interesting when you think about like, you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, when the humans were first created, we were created out of the dust of the ground. And so Jesus sort of returns to the, the, sort of the, the essential nature of who you are, this dust, this mud, and he wipes it over his eyes, instructs him to go wash in this pool. He does, he comes back and he can see, and it's just remarkable, right? Well, then for verses and verses, I mean like 40 verses, uh, Jesus disappears 
And when it comes out, because this guy is in this living in this small village, and now he can see, he's no longer sitting by the by the city gates, by the village gates. He's up and around, he's walking around, he's moving around. And so, you know, the question is, how did this guy get healed? And and so people ask him, how did you get healed? And he essentially says, I don't know. This person named Jesus healed me. Uh, and all I know is I once used to be blind and now I can see, and that's really all I know. Well, that drives everybody crazy, right? The religious leaders hate that answer because, well, what is who is this Jesus? And they had heard of him, but this is still relatively early in the ministry of Jesus. And so they asked all these questions and a problem came up and and that was that the, the man was healed on the Sabbath and uh, you're not allowed to do anything if you're a, uh, uh, a Jew who follows the commandments, right? Sabbath is, you certainly, you certainly can't heal anybody even if that was an option. Uh, you couldn't uh, cook, you couldn't, there's nothing. I mean, you couldn't walk more than a certain amount of steps. There was very, very rigid rules to protect the day of rest. And these are good things. The, the, the Sabbath is a really, really good thing. But the religious leaders were really confused because here we have someone that, someone, Jesus, who's doing something, healing someone that, gosh, certainly appears to be, that would put him in a category of maybe being the Messiah. But why does he have to do it on the Sabbath? That makes no sense. Uh, if you're really from God, if you're really the Messiah, you wouldn't you wouldn't have known to not do it on the Sabbath. So it's very confusing. He is not conforming to the categories of Messiahship that these guys have. And so, uh, so these religious leaders start an investigation and they start asking the different. They ask the guy first of all, and he just he says what he's, he's he sticks to his story. He goes, "I don't know who this guy Jesus is. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. That's really all I know." So they ask some of the village friends and the community members who have known this guy for his whole life. And they say ridiculous things like, I don't even, like some of them say, I don't even know if it's really actually the guy. Maybe it's some different person who's walking around. <laughs> I mean, how? Um, because something happened that completely defied their categories. They don't know what to do with it. And, and the religious leaders finally in this long investigation, they pull in the guy's parents and, and the guy's parents say, you know what? He is our son. He was born blind and now he can see, but we don't know what happened. You're going to have to talk to him about that. And they were afraid because what ends up happening to the guy is he gets thrown out of the community, he gets excommunicated from the community, uh, which is a big deal in the first century because you it's not like you can just take a bus down to the next community and get a new job your whole life is that community and being outcast from it is is almost a death sentence so um the parents know that that's what's probably going to happen to the son and so they take the safe route and um instead of really standing by their son they throw him under the bus essentially and so uh, they have this long conversation. Finally, the guy who now can see and the religious leaders and the, the guy that now can see starts getting a little snarky and he starts saying like, do, do you guys want to become his disciples too? <laughs> Why don't you go talk to him? Well, what's interesting is that, uh, well, there's so many interesting things in this story, but what's really fascinating to me anyway, is that Jesus doesn't have 
any um he, he is nowhere to be found nowhere uh, during this whole investigation no one asks for jesus jesus doesn't show up and explain everything uh and really i mean you that's a good question like this guy gets kicked out and if jesus would have shown up maybe he wouldn't have gotten kicked out maybe he could have explained things but he doesn't jesus is nowhere to be found during the investigation it's as if he does this thing on the sabbath he heals a person and then he disappears no one understands what he does everyone is making up their own story about what really happened uh, which eventually is going to lead to them making up their own stories about Jesus. Uh, and you can imagine the rumor mills are flying. Jesus himself is going to get scapegoated for a number of things, and he does get scapegoated for a number of things. But we don't see Jesus in the story until the very end. So the guy that now can see, used to be, used to be blind, is now excommunicated. He's outside of the community, and that's where we find Jesus. Jesus finds him there, looks for him, finds him there. And then he says this question, do you believe in the son of man? Now that's a weird question, right? Because again, this guy that now can see, he doesn't know who Jesus is. And none of us really at this point, we don't, Jesus hasn't died on the cross. He hasn't risen from the grave. He, he has done some miracles, but, uh, not much really. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do you believe in the son of man? And so the word believe is, can be roughly translated as trust. But then the son of man, it's this interesting thing that Jesus calls himself, doesn't call himself the son of God, he calls himself the son of man, which is essentially, the son of man means like the human one, the most human one like the mother of all humans, we would have said back in the 80s and 90s, uh, the mother of all humans, meaning the most essential human being, the son of humanity. Do you believe in the son of humanity? So we got these two guys, both of them are scapegoated, both of them are outcast. And one of them is saying, do you believe in the son of humanity? And the guy says, I would if I only knew who he was. <laughs> What a great question, right? The guy still doesn't know. And then Jesus says, well, it's me. He who is speaking to you is he. And it's like Jesus doesn't get that clear with anybody else. He's enigmatic. He is like in the very next chapter, John chapter 10, we're going to see him cornered by some, some more religious leaders in the temple and they essentially say to him, just quit wasting our time. Tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. That's what they ask him. Now that maybe sounds like a reasonable question. It's a question that, you know, why wouldn't you ask that? And some people might say, why wouldn't Jesus just answer that? Why wasn't he clear? But Jesus doesn't answer the question. He's, he's saying moo again. And he basically says, you know what? I've already told you, but you didn't believe, which is partly true and partly not true. He hasn't really told them, but what he says next is how he has told them. He goes, my works show who I am. My works testify to who I am and that the Father has sent me. 
So if you think about, you know, the story of the man that was born blind that we just talked about in John chapter nine, he's referring to that story. That is who the, that is what the father is doing in this world. Uh, and so whatever categories you have of Messiahship, uh, if it doesn't include healing people on the Sabbath, then it doesn't matter what I will tell you or won't tell you about whether or not I'm the, I'm the Messiah, because it's not going to fit into your categories anyway. And I just, I understand, like, I, I'm not going to waste my time trying to explain that to you because you already have a set uh, category of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah does. And I don't fit that category. Now he's not even being that plain, right? But that's what he means. That's what he means. And so he just says, I'm going to continue to do what I have been doing. And because of that, um, that's how I will show my, um, that's how I will show who I am. And then you can decide what you believe about. So Jesus has so many times like this where he is misunderstood and where he's given the opportunity to clear it up, right? And you kind of have to believe he was brilliant enough to where like sometimes you go, well, why didn't you just clear it up? You could have, I think. But the reality is Jesus knew that for those who have a preconceived set of ideas and categories about who Jesus is or should be. And when Jesus himself actually shows up and contradicts those ideas and categories, 99.99% of human beings are not going to be intellectually argued into a different point of view. Instead, we will take our ideas and our categories and we will assume that those are right. And what we see this Jesus doing, if it defies those categories, if it contradicts those categories and ideas, we will say, well, he must not be who he says he is and he must not be the real deal. I must be right. This is what we do when we stay in our heads, when we stay in our minds. Almost none of us will be argued into a different way of seeing. When we think about the man that was born blind though, or when we think about those wedding guests and especially that steward who dipped his cup into the water and pulled out wine, or when we think about Lazarus who was raised from the dead in John chapter 11, and we think about any number of really abundant miraculous things that happen. That's what makes you change your mind. When something unexpected happens and you experience it, when you experience something for real that contradicts your way of thinking and believing, that, that is almost the only way that you're going to change your mind. And the reality is this. And it's true about me, it's true about you, and it's true about everyone who's ever posted anything on Twitter, is that you are probably partly right and partly wrong. But you definitely have a preconceived set of categories and ideas for who you think a real Christian is, who you think Jesus is, who you think God is, who you think your enemy is. And 
you are going to uh, believe that you are absolutely right. I do this, you do this, your enemy does this, Republicans do this, Democrats do this. And there's almost no way out of that um, mind game where you just, where you know you're right other than an experience of um, something that happens to you or you see happen to someone else uh, that it's not an argument, it's not a theological debate, it's not something that happens in your mind, it's something that you see. And you say, I can't explain it, I don't totally know what happened, but I once was blind, but now I see. Meaning, oh my goodness, uh, what I thought was right, what I thought was true, really wasn't true. It was only partially true. And now I see a little bit more clearly. So this, this moment of transformation, even liberation, this moment is when you realize, oh my goodness, what I was taking as absolute total reality really was only a portion of it. Now, I that's really not to say that you can't dig, sink your teeth down into something really true and count on it. I don't think everything is relative. I don't think every, I don't think there's no such thing as absolute truth at all. But if there is absolute truth, if it's universally, infinitely true, then how in the world do you or I think that you have a full grasp on that right now? <laughs> you know what I mean? At best, you have a partial view and humility comes when you can admit that. I knew in part, I knew partially, I understand partially. Um, and that can give you some humility when you understand that you weren't completely right. So here's what I want to say. Uh, that was all backdrop. Essentially, when you do something that you really do believe in, when you say something that you really do believe in, okay, and it gets misunderstood, uh, maybe you spend a little time trying to clarify. Maybe you spend a little time even sort of backtracking and saying, is that really what I meant to say, meant to do? But if it really was what you meant to say, and if it really was what you meant to do, you can know that you're you're not completely right, that you're only partially right. I mean, you can you can really, really know that, okay? Just hold that. But don't spend a ton of time trying to figure out uh, what or how to convince someone what you really meant, what you really were trying to say. Because honestly, you're, they're never going to go there, right? They're not going to understand. If they keep coming back at you with their own categories, their own ideas, which are very inconsistent with yours, at some point you got to say, peace be with you. Man, just today I was on, and it was pretty respectful to be honest, but I was on a back and forth with someone on Twitter about something. And we were coming at it from two totally different points of view. And 
that person probably could say the exact same thing about me, that I wasn't understanding him, that I wasn't getting him, that I wasn't seeing what he was saying, and maybe I wasn't. But I also made the decision that I wasn't just going to let it go. I felt like it was important for me to sensitively, I, I hope, uh, kindly, I hope, uh, try to explain no, th this is how I see that. This is how I see how that went down. Um, but but after three or four exchanges, I realized, okay, this is never, this is just never gonna, never gonna get there. It's never, we're never in this medium and in this way, we're not gonna see each other. So I'm not gonna spend any more time trying to be understood. I'm gonna move on. Okay. So when you do something and say something, then you, again, you're not going to be totally right, but you get misunderstood and you try to explain yourself a little bit. You try to go back and forth a little bit and it becomes really clear and you know when it's going to become clear that there's just not going to be a coming together of minds on this one. It's really okay just to move on. You don't need to explain yourself. You don't need to spend any more time trying to convince because it's just not going to happen. What you can do is what Jesus did is he goes outside of that community. He goes to the margins and he finds the, the blind guy and he talks to him. He has this intimate conversation with him. You need to stop wasting all your energy trying to convince people on the inside about something that people on the outside really need to hear. Some of you really need to hear that. Some of you are spending so much energy banging your head against the wall uh, in the hopes that you will be understood by people that are never gonna understand you. And I think it's time to walk away from those folks. It is okay, you can be kind. Uh, you don't have to blow anybody up. Uh, and certainly don't leave too soon, but I think you're going to know when you're wasting your time. So instead of wasting all your energy with folks who are defending something and just aren't going to get what you're saying, uh, consider ways that you can move, like Jesus did, to the margins, to outside of that community, and maybe you'll get a better hearing. Maybe you'll learn a whole lot more about, even more about what you believe and what you think by spending time out there. Uh, I think you're gonna find some freedom out there. I think you're gonna find some joy out there. I think you're gonna find some real contentment in just saying you don't have to convince everybody of everything. You can let it go. You can leave and still be misunderstood and it's really okay. All right, folks, this was a little bit more of a sermon uh, than it was a podcast. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. Tweet at me, Steve Weens. Uh, or uh, get in touch with me via my website, steveweens.com. So enjoy, my friends. Enjoy the rest of your week. And thank you, as always, for listening. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. 
One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.